Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun. Twice each month I release a classic episode that I think is still relevant and worth your time while we do some catch-up work or, uh, you know, some behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, today it just happens to be the holidays, so we're taking some time off. Uh, so today's rerun is going out at the same time as our most recent bo bonus episode for members in which Amanda and I discuss the illusion that is this debate in our country between individualism and collectivism. Uh, conservatives recognize, rightly, the benefits of taking care of oneself, and then they just can't help but take that idea to the extreme, coming to believe that providing any kind of social safety net for everyone actually hurts people, or, or at least that's what they like to claim they believe. And, and to be clear, I'm not even talking about all conservatives, just the ones who managed to get themselves elected. Progressives, on the other hand, recognize the benefits of uh, social benefits so thoroughly that some might even become suspicious of any mention of personal action for fear, sometimes rightly, to be fair, uh, that the conversation will ultimately lead to the decimation of social programs. So we discussed that in a lot of detail from a variety of angles and even looked at some of the ways uh, that that essential debate, individualism versus collectivism, may actually change the way people in different societies, societies that see this debate differently, come to see themselves and how they then approach the various challenges in your life. Uh, so I think that's pretty interesting. And as part of that conversation, I mentioned that I much prefer the idea of a co-op focused economy as opposed to the current hierarchical corporation ownership structures that we primarily uh, have today. So I thought it would be a good time to release a refresher about what co-ops are and dispel some myths about them. So enjoy this primer on co-ops. And if you remember, of course, now, or if you want to sign up as one, listen in on our deep dive conversation on the problems with individualism and all of our recent bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or of course, just visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. In the marketplace, our people benefit from direct and indirect business ownership. There are currently close to 10 million self-employed workers in the United States. That's nearly 9% of total civilian employment. And millions more hope to own a business someday. Furthermore, over 47 million individuals reap the rewards of free enterprise through stock ownership in the vast number of companies listed on the U.S. stock exchanges. I can't help but believe that in the future we'll see in the United States and throughout the Western world an increasing trend toward the next logical step, employee ownership. It's a path that benefits a free people. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show, and right now during our summer fundraiser, you can support this show and great climate change and sustainability organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time. Do both in these last couple of days of August, and you can receive a free Best of the Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the summer fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today, starting with that voice we just heard, good old Ronnie Reagan, and now coming up, The Laura Flanders Show, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, DW English, a TEDx talk, and Workplace Democracy. You cannot be what you cannot see, so they say. Well, we all saw an economy in crisis a few years ago. Now, in between fear of another crisis and pain in a supposed recovery, many Americans are looking about frustrated. Last year, researchers with the Pew Center found that 78% of us believe too much power is concentrated in a few huge companies. 62% believe our current economic system is rigged in favor of the most powerful, and it is. But what else is possible? At Grit TV, we've always been most curious about that. What can everyday people do, not just to survive in the world we know, with its poverty, pollution, and war, but to create a world with the real food, good fellowship, and rewarding livelihoods that make life, well, fabulous? Worker-owned cooperatives, where workers are offered a share in the company and a say in decision-making, are one way to redistribute economic power. The successful ones have a good track record of reducing inequality and building local assets. But co-ops aren't easy, and they aren't for everybody. 
A year ago, Grit TV and Tessa, the toolbox for education and social action, teamed up to take a close look at what it takes for a worker-owned cooperative to succeed. The result is Own the Change, Building Economic Democracy One Worker Co-op at a Time, a short documentary with conversations with worker owners from Union Cab, Ginger Moon, Arismendi Bakery, New Era Windows, and more. Own the Change is just out, and it gives an overview of what a worker co-op really is, how it can transform lives and communities, and the realities of starting one. In addition to the film, we've created a series of educational resources that you can use alongside the documentary. Are you interested? I'll tell you more in a minute. Just as people creating co-ops are trying to do business differently, we believe in doing media differently. Would building democracy and working together be easier if our media gave us as many visions of people collaborating as they do of people competing? What if we were encouraged to participate as much as we're pushed to purchase stuff? And what if we measured prosperity, not by how high we could pile up resources, but how widely we could spread them out? Would our heroes, not to mention our politicians, look different? Just maybe. See Own the Change in Full this week on the Laura Flanders Show on Telesaur English or Link TV and get your hands on those educational resources through our website. That's grittv.org. I'm Laura Flanders. The next update I want to bring to your attention is also a written report. This one is not a book, uh, but it's a report by a very famous European student of business. I want to introduce her to you first and then tell you what her recent report finds. Her name is Virginie Perrotin, French. Virginie Perrotin is currently a professor of economics at a British university, Leeds University Business School in the United Kingdom. She specializes in the effects of firm ownership and governments uh, and governance on how companies work. I want to read to you her list of previous jobs she's held. Ready? She's had positions at the International Labor Office, the London School of Economics, the Centre d'Etudes des Revenus et des Coutes, which is a central uh, office in the French Prime Minister's office in Paris. She is a professor who has also acted as a consultant to the European Commission, the World Bank, and the OECD. You really could not get a more prestigious resume of a professor of business wherever you looked. Okay, what is that that she's done? She's written a report. It's called, What Do We Really Know About Worker Cooperatives? And it was published by Cooperatives UK, if you're interested in looking it up on the uh, internet to find out the details of this report. I can also give spell out her name, that you can find it that way, P-E-R-O-T-I-N. So what were the conclusions of her report, What Do We Really Know About Worker Cooperatives? I'm going to read them, they're not many to you, and I believe they will perhaps adjust your thinking about what's at stake in moving from an economy that has is dominated by corporations with an undemocratic top-down structure where a handful of major shareholders have the power, they elect the board of directors, and together the major shareholders and the board of directors, a group of 10, 20, 30 people in most corporate cases, they make all the decisions. What to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that everybody's labor helped to produce. Versus a worker co-op, where all those decisions are made democratically, one worker, one vote, bringing to the economic system the democracy that has so far been kept from it. She examined the two kinds of enterprises. Europe has many more worker co-ops than the United States, absolutely and proportionally. So she had much to study around the European uh, situation. Now, here we go. 
What did she find? And by the way, she studied co-ops in Latin America, United States, and so on. So it's a general conclusion of years of study. And she also studied existing data on worker-owned and run businesses and compared them to conventional businesses. Here are her conclusions. One, worker cooperatives are larger than conventional businesses and are not necessarily less capital-intensive. Let me explain what that means. Many people seem to think that worker co-ops are only something that applies to a very small business with very few workers. She is here to explain to us, having looked at the data, that worker co-ops are on average larger than conventional capitalist businesses and use just as much technology, if not more. Number two. Worker cooperatives survive at least as long as other businesses and have more stable employment. Again, countering the myth that worker co-ops don't survive when compared to their capitalist counterparts. That's not true. Number three, and this is the one I would urge you to pay most attention to. Worker cooperatives are more productive than conventional businesses. Their staffs work better and smarter, and the production in them is organized more efficiently. So those of you that might have wondered or worried that worker cooperatives can't or won't compete with capitalist enterprises because they can't be so ruthless to their workers, they can't be so profit and efficiency driven, not so. The most comprehensive study we have by Professor Pehotin proves exactly the opposite. Next conclusion. Worker cooperatives retain a larger share of their profits than other business models. In other words, worker co-ops take more of their profits and plow them back into the business to make it more efficient, to make it more successful than do conventional capitalist enterprises who take a big chunk of the profits and hand it to the shareholders to have the rich lifestyle and hand it to the top executives for the same purpose. That's one of the reasons the worker co-ops are more efficient. And finally, Executive and non-executive pay differentials are much narrower in worker cooperatives than in capitalist firms. Well, folks, let me translate that one to you real simply. It means that worker co-ops don't distribute the wealth they create so that a few people are very wealthy and everybody's pinched. That's what capitalist conventional businesses do. That's why we have the inequality of the economic systems in Europe, North America, South America, and so on. Capitalism produces inequality, and worker co-ops are a direct alternative pushing in the opposite direction for less inequality, and that's what they have achieved. If you find this interesting, as I certainly did, and that's why I'm bringing it to your attention, once again, the name of the professor, Virginie, that's the French equivalent of Virginia, Perrotin, P-E-R-O-T-I-N, her report just released, What Do We Really Know About Worker Co-ops? There's still a lot of work to do, but only four days a week. Ana de Castro is working shorter hours at the moment. The economic crisis has hit the Fagor company hard. De Castro has been fitting electric motors in refrigerators for the past 12 years. She's responsible for this part of the production process now. As a member of the cooperative, she also owns part of the company. All of the workers are part owners. We make the money, it's ours. It affects us all. If this wasn't a cooperative, 
then the company would have downsized and people would have been fired. Fagor hasn't fired anyone. And that in spite of how difficult it is currently to sell fridges in Spain, where the market has shrunk by 40% in the past three years. Production manager Jose Antonio Gonzalez and his co-workers have agreed on drastic cuts with management. At the end of the day, we don't owe anybody anything. We workers are lucky to be part owners. We are the people who have to decide what to do and how much to cut our wages, how much we have to sacrifice. That's how we'll get by. The Mon Aragon Cooperative is made up of 255 companies working in different fields. Most families in this small town of 20,000 people make their living from the cooperative. Unemployment is just over 9% in the region. The Spanish national average is double that. Corporate headquarters look down over the town. General Secretary Arancha Lascurain coordinates the finances. The parts of the cooperative which are faring well support those which are struggling. We can't deny that the crisis is affecting our business. But there are differences between us and other companies that will help us emerge from the crisis successfully. On the whole, we're still growing. We've been able to maintain worker levels by making the necessary adjustments. Over the past 50 years, the Montragón Cooperative has learned how to master different crises. The Montragón Cooperative owns companies with a global reputation. A few kilometers downriver, the Danabat Group makes machine tools for customers like Siemens and General Electric. Business is good at the moment, despite the poor economic situation in Spain. How do you prepare for something like this? You try to become more international, so you don't rely on individual markets. You look for strategic areas that are less affected by the crisis and develop technologies that are hard to copy. And you need some luck. 95% of the machines Danobat makes are for export, mainly to China and Germany, and demand is growing. That means the company needs more workers at the moment. Engineer Aitor Corta worked in a different Mondragon company until recently. But there wasn't enough for him to do there, so he moved to Danobat. I'm part of something bigger. If circumstances mean that there isn't enough work for me in my company, then instead of ending up on the street, I still have the chance to find another job in another firm belonging to the cooperative. Like all the other members, Aitor Corta had to buy his way into the cooperative for 15,000 euros. But that gives him a share of the profits. And it's an investment in a more secure future. Wow, it's great to see so many people here. <laughs> so especially for a topic like health insurance. I, I, very riveting. I, I thought I'd start by talking about the history of the co-payment and then a little bit about co-insurance and whether it applies before or after the deductible and how it relates to out-of-pocket maximums. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> You guys are, I hope it, I, I'm not really going to talk about that, but I hope it makes you think a little bit about your own experiences in, in using health insurance. And I'm here because we're starting a health insurance co-op that's going to be, yes, 
Yes, that never happens. <laughs> this wow, wow. No, seriously. Usually, when I say that, people kind of get this blank stare and they say, "Okay, yeah. So what? So how are you going to be different? And how are you going to compete with the big guys?" And 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 it misses the point. I mean, I can talk about all the great things that we're going to do with benefits and great customer service, but the cool thing really is that we're a co-op, and that it, there's this intrinsic nature of a co-op and something that you can't feel or touch. That's really cool. So my job here to do is. My job here is to make sure y'all get it, and so I'm, I'm going to do a little co-op 101, and then I'm going to talk about how we think it's going to work in health insurance, and then even more importantly, how we think we can leverage some of the connectedness that comes out of the co-op model to, to affect even broader change in, in healthcare. So I'm going to start with uh, the 101 bit. Um, so all co-ops, I mean, co-ops is just a business model, and there are three things that all co-ops need to be successful. And the, the better that they do these things, then the more impactful that they are. So the first one is uh, a compelling need. There has to be a compelling need. And then you need an ownership structure, and then you need some intrinsic values. So to illustrate compelling need, I, I, uh, I think a, a good example is the rural electric co-ops. So kind of hearkening back to our Western heritage. Um, in the 1930s, rural people had a very compelling need. And this was it. Yeah. <laughs> Is it obvious? Rural people were united around their need for light. <laughs> And it felt weird. Um, but they were very connected. And in the 1930s, FDR... Um, uh, put out a low interest federal loan program for people in rural communities to band together and develop uh, cooperative businesses in their communities to help solve the problem and bring electricity and telephone service to rural America. And it's one of the best co-op stories. And th those entities and co-op businesses still exist today. So in healthcare, uh, there's also a really compelling need. And it's even more compelling than electricity, and it has to do with uh, being able to access healthcare. And it's one of those things that is so fundamentally important for our ability to to live and to think and to be productive in society. And this isn't perfect, but there there are haves and have-nots in in health insurance. And about one in seven people in Colorado don't have access to health insurance. And about one in three don't have either don't have access to health insurance or don't have health insurance that really enables them to get the care that they need. And so this guy, I mean, he's he's your neighbor. I mean, he's your co-worker's spouse. He's your brother. And he... And, and we're all related to him because when he can't get care, then he goes to the emergency room and we all pay for that care through, through higher premiums. So it, health insurance is, it's a big deal and it is something that, that we need to do better in this country. And it's, it's not as easy as electricity because the people who don't have health insurance or don't have adequate health insurance aren't as well connected, um, to be able to naturally band together to do something about it. So, so that's it. So compelling need, we definitely have that in healthcare. Um, the second component that really makes a co-op is ownership structure. And this is real simple, but the, the first triangle is, is, is how, uh, how a typical investor run organization is built. It, and it really starts with the CEO who makes decisions and promulgates them down through management and then eventually to consumers and really all with the, goal of being able to maximize shareholder value and that consumers in that model really become a means to an end. And in the co-op, it flips it on its head and that the organization exists and was formed by consumers and the consumers themselves pull together to create a consumer board, which then selects its leadership or its general manager, which in our co-op is me, and really serve at the, at the will of, of the membership and that all decisions are made with the goal of maximizing benefit and return to the members. So it's this, it's this ownership structure that enables the co-op to be able to capture and create a really different kind of value proposition and effect change. So 
back to values. So this is, this is a term that we coined in, in our little co-op. And we're a little different because we, like the rural electric co-ops, are started by low interest federal loans. And so we don't have any members yet. We're going to have a lot of members on January 1, but we've been building a health insurance company for over a year. You're really excited about being a co-op, but with no members. And so we, we've been trying to shed our, the existing values that we had coming from other parts of the health insurance industry or providers and, and to say, okay, well, let's really figure out how do we how do we uh, foster these values of uh, collaboration and also um, self and social responsibility and one of our staff members came up with this term and we I was looking back at my emails before coming here to see how it was being used um, we definitely use it to describe how we interact or some of our PR campaigns we call our very very co-op-y um, and it's all often being used to describe somebody's behavior in the office. So we might say, ooh, very, very co-op-y. Um, and I even noticed one email we said, it was, it said something like, well, you know, women show up in, in biz, uh, business attire and men show up, can, can wear co-op-y metro. <laughs> whatever, whatever that means. So it can be, I did not dress very co-op-y tonight. So I apologize for that. Um, but anyhow, we're really trying hard to capture these values. And it's this co-oppiness that is how we think um, our co-op is going to work in health insurance. So this is kind of the circle of a co-op and how it works. So first you got to sign up and then you got to engage. And we really expect that people who join our health insurance co-op are going to engage. And it doesn't have to be big. It just can be as simple as providing us feedback. I mean, is it working? Um, or it can be, uh, we ask everyone who signs up to commit to taking care of their own health or maintaining their own health. And that, that is a behavior change that we really expect our members to have because they own the company or not technically we're a nonprofit, but that they are, <laughs> have an ownership relationship with our company. Um, and then also we want people to be engaged and we'll provide tools for people to, um, use healthcare wisely. And so to look at their options and look at things like cost and quality before choosing where to get care. So that engagement, because there's so much inefficiency in the healthcare system, it's not that hard to deliver a benefit. And that benefit really is a reduction in cost. And that's one of the major reasons why people can't get health insurance today is because it's so hard to afford. Um, the second engagement is is really the place where we can leverage this cycle and do something even more impactful than just reduce healthcare costs for the people who sign our co-op. I mean, this is, this is the innovation part, the edginess part of the co-op culture is how do we take this connectedness that this model creates among consumers and users and do something to make healthcare that much better. And there's lots of room for that. I mean, imagine a healthcare system that was created for consumers. We, I, we, we'd probably be able to sign up for doctor's appointments online. We might even get a text message if our doctor was running late because he had to go into surgery so that we wouldn't have to sit there for a couple hours. We'd be able to access care after hours. You know, we'd be able to have virtual visits and email our doctor and not have to go into the office just because we needed our drugs filled. So there's just a, there's a whole lot of potential to do things better and really, believe that the the culture and the values of the co-op and the connectedness that it, it creates allows us to do this in really unusual ways. And you know as I was thinking about this this talk, it while the while the, the co-op is is something that helps make this easier to do because of the ownership structure. There are a lot of other opportunities to be creating connectedness. And it's even more important today as we become less connected that we really find ways to, to foster these values of co-opiness and connect ourselves and unite our diffuse voices around, around bigger issues and, and social change. So I, I really hope that you'll leave and think about the work that you do and, and how, and the values that you're cultivating in, in your lives and in your businesses and find ways to allow us to be more connected around those things that are really important. Here's the information. Let's all work together and join in
Welcome back to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore. This is Reality Asserts Itself. We're continuing our series of interviews with Gar Alperwitz. And Gar now joins us in the studio again. Gar is the Lionel R. Bauman Professor of Political Economy at the University of Maryland, co-founder of the Democracy Collaborative. His most recent book is What Then Must We Do? Straight Talk About the Next American Revolution. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So, Gar, you've talked a lot about the importance of workers' co-ops and, and, and probably the most outstanding, largest, gone-to-scale version of workers' co-op is Mondragon in Spain. It was a multi-billion dollar business with different divisions and all kinds of uh, production. And for a lot of people, people were saying, well, this is kind of the future. And, 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 and that, this is the way to transform the society. Um, well, one, in spite of all success, Mondragon did not transform Spanish society, economy, or politics. And then more recently, the, the Fagor division, which does electronics, washing machines, and dishwashers and such, essentially has gone bankrupt because they couldn't compete with cheaper Chinese products and the collapsing Spanish economy and such. Um, so, so talk about, you know, what we can learn from Mondragon as a positive, but also the limits of, of building workers' co-ops in terms of tra- bigger transformation. Yep. It's very, it's a very important point. I, I just did an article on this, the subject, because it raises a very important strategic issue for thinking about how we want to organize our own economy. Uh, Mondragon is, is, you know, 80,000 workers involved in maybe 85 co-ops, or depends how you count it, count them. And it's been very successful, very participatory. This is the plus side. Wages, top to bottom, the ratio in 80% of them were 6 to 1. American corporations, it's 250 to 300 to 1, top to bottom. So very democratic and democratic participation. In a few of the, of the larger ones, it was slightly worse, 9 to 1. But eight to one. So it's a very democratic distribution of income compared with the corporate system and more dis, uh, democratic participation. So there's a lot to learn. On the other hand, they are operating in the global market. They're operating in the Spanish market and they are totally dependent on the conditions of capitalism in those markets. And as we've just seen, they've, one of the big, big units collapsed and, and the other units, usually they try to support each other. The other units couldn't. couldn't. Well, even in the collapse, uh, Mondragon's done something no big capitalist firm would do, which is they were using their own insurance company to guarantee wages for the the laid-off workers for two years, and they're going to try to oh, find other jobs for them. Absolutely. So, so even at that level, it's it's, it's better than what the alternative absolutely. would Absolutely, and, and no one should be... It's a very important, very positive experiment. And it's within limits, because it's dependent upon the world market and, it, that, and also the vicissitudes of capitalism. And so it's, it's got difficulties. So when you actually ask what, what ought to be done with co-ops or things like Mondragon, they could be part of the new economy. I, don't, I think that's certain. But if you get to significant scale, and Mondragon and Fagor, that division, were large scale, you're really up against either the economy has a certain planning capacity or you're up against the markets and you're faced with the, what's happened to them. So, for instance, next time General Motors collapses, and I think there will be a next time in Chrysler, we just took them over. The government bailed out that big company, made it, socialized it, became a nationally owned government company. U.S. taxpayers owned it. What we ought to be doing, thinking about this model, is building mass transit, high-speed rail, turning that into a transportation company with taxpayer money is going to pay for it anyway. That's what we're doing now and then begin using our planning for transportation as a society, the government, to begin saying, okay, this is how many roads, this is how many rails we really ought to have, moving away from all the highway system, moving away from flights as well. The rails are much more efficient than flights if you had a, and supporting cities by having adequate transportation, where now the airlines are cutting out of cities like Cincinnati, the whole city's gonna go down. We ought to have a transportation plan that will tell you how many rails and how many buses and how many trains you need. And then you produce to the plan and you have stability because you have a plan. Now, I don't think the entire economy ought to be planned, but major segments of it can be planned and well, solve the problem of companies facing uh, unemployment like Fagor. Well, major sectors of the economy are already planned. Yes. It's just their own privately. Like probably maybe the most brilliant piece of planning and, and the largest private employer in the country is Walmart. Yep. 
Walmart is an incredibly planned economy. It's just owned privately, and there's no, re you know, it's planned in a way that workers are paid terrible wages. But if you had, for example, a publicly owned Walmart that paid decent wages, it would have an enormous ripple effect throughout the whole economy. That's right. The planning takes place in every major corporation. I mean, they, you take a tube of toothpaste off a Walmart shelf, they know in somewhere in Asia <laughs> another tube of toothpaste has to be produced. So I hope, you I hope, can't get more planned than that. Right. I hope, I hope we can move that back and have the United States beginning to do that rather than Asia. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other set of questions. But planning takes place. We know how to do that. Now, there is a whole question about democratic planning which means that the society has to produce a democratic capacity. Right now, the corporations control a lot of the, polit the politics of this. So we're, when you say planning is necessary, and it is necessary to deal with Mondragon, Fagor, these problems we're talking about to deal with transportation, then you're also saying we need a democratic society because otherwise the corporations will control the national planning. So you're talking about really changing the whole nature of the substructure of the system. We're talking about who has power. Who has power, because the planning system is going to be controlled by somebody. And it's either the corporations or we have to. And to say that is to say, to, you want to play this game about changing the system? The chips are three decades of your life. We're talking about big time, build from the bottom, begin to reshape from, from the neighborhood, from the worker-owned co-ops, from the cities some of the really interesting things that you're doing here in Baltimore, beginning to build up knowledge, ideas, experiments, a program that actually is practical and look at it as a 30-year strike, as a strategy at least to begin to deal with the power of the system. So that's, that's the name of the game. Uh, and, and I mean, it flows from the idea that concentration of ownership gives rise to con concentration of political power. Yes. So you need to change the way things are owned. That's uh, the central, uh, central element, systems... You know, in feudalism, it was land. Who owned the land had the power. Capitalism, who owns the capital, has the power. State socialism, there was a form where the state controlled it, and it could have been well, democratized. It was another form of too much concentration That's of right. ownership because the party winds up controlling the state, so the party now has the concentration of ownership, and you, you wind up with the same kind of similar kind of problem. I can't say same kind, but a, a similar exactly. kind of problem. Which tells you that the model that we want to build has to have democratized ownership but democratized in a way that builds from the bottom up so that the concentrations of power are not overly concentrated, that the terms are whether appropriate to the scale. So little co-ops in some places, city-owned in other places, neighborhood-owned in other places, state-owned, state -owned. regional, the Tennessee Valley Authority, was designed in the initial state as a way to do ecology of the river, and power. It got taken over. And, but there will still be some things of scale, national scale, and then which there's are national. going to have to be nationally Absolutely. Owned. And then there's national. So, you, But again, the principle, I call it a pluralist commonwealth. Pluralist commonwealth. The principle is you always stay at the lowest level necessary and only go up if you have to so that you keep it closer to democratic processes. So that's the kind of vision that at least we've been trying to develop and begin to get, you know, and get very real about it in terms of what's on the ground. There are places around the country where almost everything we're talking about is already being done in one form or another. It's practical. And well, if it so isn't what are practical, some of the best examples? The, the best examples, of, for instance, in Cleveland, there's an extremely interesting, and many other places are, are doing something like this. There's an extremely interesting neighborhood. is 40,000 people, mostly black. Unemployment, 40%. Average family income, 18,000. Really beat, beaten up neighborhood. Well, there's a complex... Average family income, 18,000? 18,000, 18, yeah. In that neighborhood, there's a community-wide structure, nonprofit corporation, and worker-owned cooperatives, which are subordinate to it, but work together. So they kick in a little bit of profit in order to start new ones. And they, not just little ones, there is the largest urban, the largest urban greenhouse in the United States is one of these things. Three million heads of lettuce a year. That's the scale we're talking about. Not that people think of co-ops. They think little tiny things. There's a huge industrial scale laundry. There's another a different co-op that it's very green. It uses about a third of the water and a third of the heat. And then there's other being built each year. But the point is that some of the money goes to build the neighborhood. Some of it goes to start new co-ops. And then they use the purchasing power of universities and hospitals in that area, so Case Western Reserve University, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, are right in this poor neighborhood. They buy three billion, with a B, 
dollars in goods and services, plus the salaries, plus the construction, just what they buy. None of it from this neighborhood beforehand. But now they're beginning to shift some of it, a lot of public money there too, Medicare, Medicaid, education money, taxpayer money. They're beginning to shift it to this purchasing to help rebuild the neighborhood. That's a really interesting model because it has very decentralized ownership, but you're using essentially quasi-public resources to help do it. And many other cities are waking up to the fact they've got the same situation and they can do it. So Atlanta's now beginning to do it. There are two or three going to be in the Washington, D.C. area, several around the country beginning to see you can begin putting down these principles, these practices, practically. Interesting other thing about this, which is very important, particularly for liberals and, and the left to think about, if you're doing this kind of work and it's practical, and it really is serious, not rhetoric, not at rhetoric and slogans, you find people who think of themselves as moderates and conservatives, small business people, who say that's a good thing to do at the local level. These are not the national ideologues. And you find people, that's an intelligent, people working hard, they're trying to better the neighborhood, trying to better themselves. They're doing productive work. That's a good idea. And we're, we're surprised at how you break through ideologies if it's practical. Now, now the critique of, of Cleveland model and, and, and co-ops is somewhat a little bit what we talked about, the limits of Mondragon, which is it's, it's good for the people that are working there. Right. But it's not transformative to the city, to the state, and it doesn't change who has power. Like, you still have, you know, a tiny handful of people uh, and or corporations that control the commanding heights of the economy Absolutely. and thus have control the commanding heights of the politics, and the basic structures don't change. So mm -hmm. even if these are kind of, you know, nice shape of things to come, to be transformative, something at the political level has to happen. You really have to change who has power. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. These are, at this stage, I think, as I, I'm a historian and a political economist, you, you don't talk about any of this without throwing some decades on the table. At this stage, we're developing the new models, and we are. That's because of the context. The reason this is happening is because of the economic pain coming out of stalemate and stagnation. And you can't get the old liberal programs passed. It, there's no money. So people well, either... Well, there, there, there is the money. They just won't tax it. Well, they won't tax it, yes, yeah. in theory, but you can't get it. The labor unions are not powerful enough to support liberal candidates. The whole thing is what used to be possible is no longer possible. So the pain levels are growing, and it's either go in this new direction or it gets worse. You're absolutely right, though. The next stage is whether or not a political component begins to pick up on that and begin talking seriously about city government. That's and there are some signs of that, too. I mean, there's some places where you have these kind of, you know, I, I don't know too much about it, but I've heard in Richmond, California, you have a green mayor and, and they're using eminent domain to stop foreclosures. Right. Uh, there's a, a sort of progressive agenda has been elected in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Yes. I don't know how it's going, but the, the, the program they got elected on looked pretty good. No, but the, it's very interesting. And again, I, you know, as a historian, you're beginning to see this pop up. Oh, the light bulb's going on. Here's all this experimentation in economics and that is happening, even though the press doesn't cover it. It's really out there. Website, by the way, community-wealth.org. Really check it out because it just covers this stuff. Uh, but at some places you're seeing, oh, the next step, we're going to have to start talking about city government. And that is beginning to be experimented. We'll have some, some failures, we'll have some successes, and we'll learn the next step in other places. I think it's really, I think this is, you know, I'd be cautious about this, but I think this may be the most important time in American history, bar none. And I would include the revolution, because I think we're running to the end of the possibilities available in the current structure. And people are being forced to innovate and think through vision and get serious about this stuff in it, rather, rather than rhetorical. Well, if necessity is the mother of invention, we should be living in interesting times. Exactly. They say the world's gone crazy, it's amazing to me. If these the last days, baby, then I'm grateful to be. I'm mine to live in interesting times. We live in interesting times. We more than money on our minds. We love each other, house of blinds. We live in interesting times. We live in interesting times. They say the world's gone crazy, it's amazing to me. The last days, baby, then I'm grateful to be I'm fine to live in interesting times We live in interesting times We have more than money on our minds We love each other, house of blinds We live in interesting times We live in interesting times 
Many of you have been interested in worker co-ops. It's becoming a more and more important topic in the United States, or what we prefer to call worker self-directed enterprises. Enterprises that are not capitalist. They don't allow a small group of people, major shareholders, boards of directors, uh, to control a big enterprise, a big factory, a store, an office, where hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people are working. That's fundamentally undemocratic, and the worker co-op rejects that. And the whole point of worker co-ops is to say that if you believe in democracy, if that's what you think is good in a community, then it applies as much to the community at work as it does to the community in the neighborhood where you live. Communities are communities, and democracy, if you believe in it, is applicable at the workplace just as much as at the residence place. Well, some of you have been worried about some dimensions of this argument. For example, is it an attack on small business? Not at all. Small businesses have nothing to do with this. A small business can be organized in a capitalist way with a, a single owner, for example, who makes all the decisions, or a group of people getting together and running the enterprise democratically. In a fair, open, competitive society, if I dare say the word, we would have both kinds. Small businesses that were capitalistically organized and small businesses that were organized as worker co-ops. We would have the same with medium-sized businesses and with big businesses. And we would have both kinds. We would have a capitalist sector and let's call it a worker cooperative sector. And that would be Wonderful. Why? Because it would give the American people freedom of choice. They could choose which of these two to buy products from that they consumed, goods and services. They could likewise choose between them in terms of where they would prefer to work. Would you rather work in a top-down, hierarchical capitalist enterprise, or would you prefer to work in a collectively, democratically organized enterprise? And then let's let the economy go in whichever direction the mass, the majority of people would prefer to see it go. This is the sort of freedom of choice we say we favor in the United States. But the only way to give the American people such a freedom of choice is to have a cooperative sector of the economy in place. We don't have that now. That is, we have 8 million laws, customs, rules of governing bank credit and government purchases. All are in place to support, to favor, to subsidize, and to give all kinds of breaks to capitalist enterprises. All I'm really arguing is, if you're going to do that for capitalist enterprises, and if you believe in freedom of choice, then you ought to be doing the same for the alternative to a capitalist top-down enterprise, and that has been, and that is, a cooperative worker democratic enterprise, one in which workers democratically govern themselves, just as they do as residents of a town or a city or a state or a nation. Wow, what an idea that it ought to be policy to develop and to do it quickly a worker co-op sector in the United States, a segment present everywhere to let everyone see and choose between these alternatives. There ought to be a political movement advocating that. There ought to be a political party advocating that. And you know what? In my remaining two minutes today, I'm going to tell you that there is one. It's really interesting. It isn't in the United States. It's in Great Britain. That's right. The British Labour Party has taken the lead and begun to advocate in a firm way the development with government support of a large, growing worker co-op sector in the British economy. The Labour Party promises, if it wins the next election, to pass a bill through the House of Commons and the British Parliament. The bill would have the following property. Anyone can start a small business the way they always have. 
everyone can stay with that business as it grows in a capitalist way, as they always have. But here's a new rule. When it comes to that business selling itself to a bigger company or deciding to become a stock company by issuing shares and becoming listed on the, the London Stock Exchange, at that moment, the law will require every company simply to do the following, to give a right of first refusal. You know what that means? It means going to its own workers and saying, before we sell this company to somebody else, and before we send this company onto the stock market where it can be owned by everybody who has money to buy shares, we are going to give you, our workers, the right of first refusal. If you want to buy this company and run it as a worker democratic enterprise, you will have first bids to do it. If you can't, if you don't want to, the company's free to look for buyers elsewhere. But we, the government, believe you should have that right because that's a way to build a worker co-op sector in our economy. Ah, and the government will help provide the financing to workers to make such an arrangement, to buy the company from their employer. And the government will provide technical assistance and low-interest loans. The government will do for these worker co-ops what it has always done for capitalist enterprises. And that will build up the sector, and that will give people a freedom of choice about their economic future that workers have never dreamed of before but that now could become the most profound challenge to capitalism in centuries. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe a little antsy for change, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join a local Democracy at Work action group. If a lot of the information in today's show about worker co-ops was brand new to you, it is not your fault. You can blame our one-track mind economists and capitalist-obsessed society for that. But if we are going to demand an alternative solution to capitalism, or at least a revised version of it that actually works for more people, then we need to learn more about the other options and spread the word with those in our communities. That is why Professor Richard Wolff, who we heard from a couple of times today from his show Economic Update, founded his organization Democracy at Work and encourages people across the country to start and get involved in Democracy at Work action groups in their community. Democracy at Work action groups are built on the belief that everyday community leaders can influence policy, politics, and culture through action and advocacy on the local and national level. To find an action group in your area, visit democracyatwork.info backslash groups to view the map of existing action groups across the country. If you don't see one near you and you'd like to start one, you can send an email to Democracy at Work's group organizer. Her email address is betsy at democracyatwork.info. Make fighting for a new economic system part of your theory of change by getting involved with organizations like Democracy at Work at democracyatwork.info. New systems don't get built on petition signatures and calls to Congress alone. Be part of the change with members of your community right where you live. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at Best 
bestoftheleft.com. Leading up to the election, we want to give you the resources, knowledge, and inspiration to get involved and stay involved beyond November. Because no matter who wins the presidency, as progressives, we always need to be prepared to fight for what is right. That's what keeps bending that arc of the moral universe towards justice. So if creating a new economic system that works for everyone is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining Democracy at Work action groups via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. And you've started something called the Sustainable Economies Law Center. What motivated you to to start that? And what is it exactly? Yeah, well, so Sustainable Economies Law Center, our mission is to help communities create their own sources of land, food, housing, jobs, energy, and, and other basic necessities, which lately has been including software, realizing so much of our lives now depend on software. Um, and my, my focus as a lawyer for the last eight years has been helping people share. So helping communities come together, harness the resources they have and share them. But as I started to do that, I realized there are so many legal barriers. One of the biggest barriers is just lawyers aren't out there to help people do that. Mm. A lot of lawyers are focused on helping people earn lots of money through big companies. And so getting the legal help you need, that's one barrier. Um, but another barrier is just that there are actually a lot of laws that keep people from coming together and sharing resources because these laws are designed to protect people from each other. So Sustainable Economies Law Center, um, we do policy advocacy to change those laws. We do legal education. We provide direct legal services. We do a lot of legal research to basically create a new legal landscape where people can co-own the resources they need. Can you give us just one example? What is a, what's an example of a law that prevents people from being able to share? Ah. Um, well, I always like to use the example of food cooperatives. Um, and I, I know here in New York, there's a big food cooperative called Park Slope. Um, but elsewhere in the country, people have started to form cooperatives. Let's say 400 people come together and they're using someone's garage to bring in a bunch of food and basically share it with each other and get food at lower costs. They could be violating health and safety laws because you can't use a garage for something like that. They could be violating employment laws if they all agree they're each going to, say, volunteer three hours a month because uh, we have employment laws to prevent people from giving away their labor. Um, if they put in their money to help start it, they could be violating securities laws, which are designed to protect them mm. from lo losing their money and in investment schemes. They could be violating zoning laws. That's that's four examples for one cooperative. What mm -hmm. kinds of laws would we really need if we wanted to foster a more of a sharing mm -hmm. kind of an economy yeah. where people are able to come together to share, uh, share ways to get food in their community, share mm -hmm. ways to be healthy in their mm -hmm. community, whatever it might be? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot that governments can do to lower barriers, create incentives to these kinds of activities. And so, for example, in the example of a worker cooperative, if you go to a small business development center and say you want to form a worker cooperative, usually, yes. even though they're government funded, they don't have that kind of knowledge around cooperatives. Even though cooperatives, they are a legal concept that we've had around for a very long time. and mm -hmm. they, they grew, especially during the Depression. And so there are a lot of co-ops out there, but there's just not a lot of encouragement to form them. Um, it's very difficult to get financing for them because you're not going to venture capitalists and asking to get financing. And so there's, I think that's a huge role uh, that the government can play is creating financing opportunities. And then overall, I, I think because a cooperative keeps wealth local, and for example, a city like New York really benefits from having worker cooperatives and from those cooperatives keeping the wealth local, 
I think New York, for example, should, and New York has been doing this, by the way, <laughs> prioritize cooperative development and put funding toward it um, to sort of grease the wheels of that movement. We yeah. saw Occupy Wall Street here in New York. Mm -hmm. It was a deep critique of inequality. We see Black Lives Matter happening. I'm just curious, how, yeah. how in this concept of cooperatives, is it thought of, or maybe it's a debate that's happening, yeah. but how are people understanding the ways in which um, cooperatives and keeping wealth local yeah. could foster and continue to contribute to some of those problems as yeah. well as break them down? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked mm. it because for a while that idea of keeping wealth local didn't speak to me because I thought people need wealth elsewhere um, as well. But then I realized it's not so much that it, the money's leaving our communities and going elsewhere. It's almost always going to people who already have money because of the, the structure of most businesses is such that the people who put in the capital are the ones who get the profits. And so cooperatives basically switch that around um, and distribute the profits back to the people who are participating. So it's a structure, rather than creating a structure um, where money buys profits and money buys power, cooperatives are structures where people hold the power and people hold the profits. And that can actually change the flow of wealth in society because we have such incredible wealth inequality right now and it's getting worse. And so it basically tells us we need to change the rules of this whole game and turn things around and bring that wealth backwards and I think back to us. And I mm -hmm. think that's what cooperatives do.